May we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Jerry, great job on the names. You may be seated. I always tell people, just read the names with confidence. Nobody knows how to really say them. So just, just say them how you think they say Just read them with confidence. So great job, Jerry, uh, for reading that. Well, I've been preparing this series and this message for months now, and it's a series that I, I'm looking forward to. I, it was about Easter this year, and I was reading through the Old Testament and my time with the Lord, and I came upon the life of David, and I thought, man, I, I want to teach the life of David to your people. And, and what I, my hope is out of this series that we'll look at the tagline. The tagline is, is a study of the life of David, a people of God after the heart of God. And I was wondering and praying over these last several months, what would it look like for us to really be a people of God, the church? That's what we just talked about all through Ephesians. To now be a church that is after the heart of God. And I want to look at the life of David. You know, the, the life of David, probably the most famous king to ever actually walk the planet. David, in the, the Old and New Testament, there's more written about David than any other character in the whole entire Bible, outside of Jesus Christ. 66 chapters just in the Old Testament are dedicated to King David. That doesn't include all the Psalms. That doesn't include the New Testament. So David's an important figure. And so what I want to look at this series is this man that God chose. And it says this in Acts chapter 13 verse 22 says this and then when he removed him god had removed him saul he raised up david to be their king in whom he testified who testified god testified i have found in david the son of jesse a man after my own heart and what i want to look at this morning in particular is this idea of the sovereignty of God. I believe that we must first realize, if we want to be a people of God, that we must believe the truth of the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God, the definition is this. God, as the ruler of the universe, is free and has the right to do whatever he wants. He is not bound or limited by the dictates of his created beings further he is complete, has complete control over everything that happens here on the earth. Do we believe that this morning? That God is sovereign over all things. We're going to look at the sovereignty of God this morning. Now God in his sovereignty chooses nobodies. But I want to look not at the nobody that he chooses, but I want to look at how God choo chose a nobody. And so let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. You see the backdrop of what's happening here. If you remember the backdrop, that the people of God, the chosen ones of God, the Israelites had been in captivity. This is the Exodus. The Exodus, they come out of uh, Egypt. They go and wander in the wilderness. Then they become a people of God. God sets them up to be his people. And God has been ruling over his people. Well, then something happens in the heart of the people. 
right? They begin to look around at the other kingdoms and they say to themselves, hey, we want to be like them, not like who God's called us to be. Now, I could preach an entire message just on that one thought. But how often do we look around and say to ourselves, man, it'd be better off if I was like that than who I really am. And so the people of God, the Israelites, begin grumbling and complaining. And so God sends them judges. God sends them prophets to judge and to lead and to move the people of God where God wants them to be led. He sends the judges when they begin to wander off. The judges are to discipline them back to where God has for them. And then Samuel comes on the picture. Samuel's a prophet. Samuel's a judge. So Samuel is God's man to speak the words of God to the people of God. Well, the people of God come to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king. And Samuel says, you, you really don't want a king, I promise. You don't want a king. That's not what you want. I'm paraphrasing. And so they have this discussion back and forth, the people of God and Samuel, and finally God says to Samuel, give them what they want. Again, I could preach an entire sermon just on that idea. How often we go to God and we go to God and we want things our way, done our way, and God's saying no, 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 and then we push the envelope and push the envelope, and finally God says, okay. How many of us have ever done that before? Like God is clearly over time saying no, that's not what's best, that's not what's best, not, that's not what's best, and we butt into God and we butt into God, and finally God says, okay. But that's God's sovereignty. That's still God being in control. Even when I butt up against God and want to do my own thing, God will say in his sovereignty, okay. Because he knows the outcome that's going to come. And so what we see here in verse 16 is the sovereignty of God beginning to shape place. This happened years before this moment that God had allowed Saul to be in place. Now, if we just look at that idea alone, and we look at the entire landscape of the Old Testament. Saul is not in the line of the Messiah. Like, that's not how it was going to happen. It was not going to happen. You can go back through the Old Testament. Look, God had a purpose and a plan from the beginning of time to redeem his people. And it was going to come through, what, the line of David. And so we have the landscape to say, oh, yeah, well, we know how it ends. The people in that day thought, well, man, what? But God is sovereign and in control of all things. And so the backdrop is this. In chapter 15, you can turn a page over, and I'll look at a few verses to give us a backdrop, a background of what's going on here. Saul had come, and the enemies of God had come to Saul, and they were uh, going to strike war with the people of God, and God says to Saul, hey, go and fight them, and you will win, but when you beat them, I, I want you to kill everything. E every man, woman, child, animal, and then take all of their things and destroy all of them. Let there be nothing left of your enemy. Destroy all of it. Well, Saul goes into battle. Saul they win the war, but then he comes in contact 
with the king of his enemy. And he decides what's best. Well, I know God said to kill him, and God said to kill everybody, and God said to kill all their stuff. But hey, let's save his life and then save all the best of what they have. Let's save all their sheep. Because then we can make sacrifices. We don't have to use our own. We can use theirs. And so Saul, it says in verse 3, Saul disobeys God. And then in 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 24, we see the man of God, Samuel, go to Saul and rebuke Saul. And call Saul into repentance. See, here's a moment in Saul's life. We're going to see a a similar moment in the life of David. Because David wasn't a perfect man by any stretch, but yet it was said of David that David was a man after God's own heart. And so here's a moment that Saul has to have the heart of God. And so he goes and they have a conversation. Samuel and Saul have this conversation. and, And it says this in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed and committed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Now, it sounds good, but the heart of Saul had not changed. He was fearful of his circumstances, not as God. And Samuel said to Saul in verse 26, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned and he went away. And then Saul, for the rest of his life from that moment on, lived a life of destruction. And so now we come, the God had chosen to remove Saul and his sovereignty, not to be the king over Israel. And now he has his plan set into place. And he says to Samuel, go, right? Does he not say go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse? But this is what it says in verse 1. And Samuel, it says this in verse 34, we'll end here. When Samuel went to his home, And Saul went to his home, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and God had regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. And now we have our context of David. The first time in the Bible that we see King David. There's no background history. There's no childhood history of Little David, as we see most of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, we have some idea of they're growing up. We have none of that for David. We have this moment that God in his sovereignty wants to choose David to be king. So God's choices, the first point is this, God's choices are sovereign. And God's choices involve sovereign providence. What does that mean? What does the word providence mean? The word sovereign means that he's in control, and the word providence means that he's got this under control. 
And so now you've got to thank in your minds the, the rest of the Israel, the, the, the Israel, the nation of Israel. Their king had been rejected, so there's got to be chaos in the land. Like the, the, it, it spread that, man, Saul is no longer God's chosen king for us, but yet he's still king. What's going to happen? And now Samuel is sent to find the king after God's own heart and says and the Lord said to Samuel how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel I I don't believe that Samuel was grieving the loss of the kingship of Saul I believe that Samuel deeply loved Saul they were close friends and I believe that he was grieving over the heart of Saul rejecting God and he says God says to him, how long are you going to grieve over that? There's a time to grieve, but now, Samuel, the grieving is over. I have a plan. I'm still in control, Samuel. Keep going, Samuel. And he says, this is my plan. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Underline that word in your Bible. I'm going to come back to that word. That word has huge implications for our future. For I've provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And then in verse 2 it says this, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. How come Saul would want to kill Samuel? Remember what happened in chapter 15. Samuel went and rebuked the king. You don't do that. And the king doesn't turn. And so who's now become the enemy, the mouthpiece of God? And Samuel is fearing his life. God, are you really sure you want me to go from here to Bethlehem? Because if I go from here, if you look on a map, I got to go right through Saul's hometown. And Saul will know I'm coming through. I'm the man of God. The people of the town are going to know I'm here. And they're going to wonder what I'm doing here and where I'm going. And then if I tell them where I'm going, that I'm going to find a king, Saul is definitely going to kill me. He's a fearful man. But yet God still has a, he's still over all things. So in verse 2, we see that God's choices involve a sovereign plan. God says, I know. I, I know that Saul will want to kill you. If Saul hears that you're coming. And the Lord said to him, here's my plan. To keep you safe. And to move us to what I have for us. And what I have for the nation of Israel. Take a heifer. That's a cow. With you and say, you've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you should do. He's saying, just take a cow, go to Jesse, and have a sacrifice. He doesn't reveal his whole plan to Samuel. He says, I have a plan, and you are going to be part of the plan by offering a sacrifice with Jesse and with his whole family. Now go. And Samuel responds in obedience, but that doesn't take away his fear. And so he goes. And he goes to Bethlehem, it says. And when he got to the gate, it says that he 
went to Bethlehem, and the elders, the people of the city, met him with trembling and saying, do you come in peace? Because historically, when the man of God or the prophet of God or the judge of God comes to a city, it doesn't end well for the city. Like normally when a judge shows up in the city, it's to cast judgment of their disobedience to God. So of course the elders are going to be fearful that the man of God is coming to their town. So they ask Samuel, do you come in peace? And he says, yes, I come in peace. And he invites them to the sacrifice. We see God's plan, his sovereign plan. We see that God's sovereign over it all, and then we see God's sovereign plan, and next we will see God's sovereignty through his power. See that in verse 4. Excuse me, verse verse 5 and 6. And he said, peacefully I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now go consecrate yourselves. Go make yourselves holy and come to the sacrifice. And then he, Samuel, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So we see God's sovereign providence. We see God's sovereign plan. We see God's sovereign power that God is over in control of all things. And now we'll see God's sovereign choices are always surprising. Are they not? Does not the word of God say God's ways are not our ways? Our thoughts are not his thoughts. God's sovereignty is always going to be surprising to us. And so the first thing that we see is that God's sovereignty and his surprising is in its rejection. So it says that here these men are, here's Jesse, here's his sons in front of Samuel to anoint, to be the king, and it, and it says this. And when they came, he looked at the oldest son, Elabab, and Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So he looks at the outward appearance of the eldest son, and he says, man, you look a lot like your dad. And remember, the people of God chose Saul because of his appearance and it says in 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 first Samuel that when Saul came they looked at Saul and he was head and shoulders above every man and he had the statue of a warrior and so the people of God looked at this man and said that's our guy look at him and Samuel knew that and yet how does Samuel first go to the eldest son of Jesse the same way the people of God did I mean that's got to be our guy look at him I mean, he's got a six-pack. He's got muscles upon muscles. He's taller than everyone else in this house. That's got to be the guy. And what does it say? We see the sovereignty of God reject this man. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or in his height or his stature because I have rejected him. That is surprising Samuel like normally in the Jewish culture the oldest son was the main man he would have been the chosen one because of his birthright because of his age and God says no 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 no, no. that's not my plan I've rejected him 
and probably one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Which moves us into God's sovereignty, leads us to God's surprising requirements. Like, man, like everything externally looked spot on. And yet there's something that God has that we will never have. It's eternal eyes and internal eyes that God can see into the heart of man. And God can decipher what's going on in the inward heart of man. You and I can never do that. That's God's sovereignty. That's God's control. That means he's over in control of all things. But I believe our translation is lost when we go from the Hebrew to the English. Because we sit and think, hey, God's, it says that God looks on outward appearance. God doesn't look at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so what's he looking at? He's looking at the heart of David, which means, man, David's heart must be right. David must be doing all these things. No, what the text literally means was that God saw his heart in David. It wasn't about David at all. You, you see that in the text. We tend to think, man, David must have had it all together. It, for, for God to choose David, David must have had it all because it says he's a man after God's own heart. But what we lose in the text is what it literally says, that God sees his heart in David. It was nothing to do with David at all. It had everything to do with God in David. That God had a plan and he had placed the plan already on the heart of David, that David was part of God's sovereign plan, not that David needed God to fulfill David's plan. And so what's the requirement in God's sovereignty will always be, do we have the heart of God? To be sovereign people, we must have the heart of God. The whole theme of this whole series is a people of God after the heart of God. And so we must ask the question, one of the requirements to be the people of God is to have a heart of God. Do we have the heart of God? First individually, and then collectively. And so, he says, that, that's not the man either. I don't see myself in that guy. So the next son passes, and he says, neither have I chosen this one. And then, the Lord says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Just, just he made all seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And I wonder at what moment Samuel's sitting there thinking, this has got to be the guy. Like, man, one, two, three, four. Hey, God, we're running out of options, man. Like, the options are getting low. The well is starting to run dry. And then he gets to the very end, and all seven has passed by. Like, what? God, didn't you send me here to anoint someone to be the king? And there's nobody left. And yet, Samuel says this to Jesse. Are all these 
are all your sons here? Like either I'm off or you're off. Because I know God told me to come and anoint somebody, and I still got a whole thing of oil. So either you're wrong or I'm wrong. Either I show up in the wrong house or you're you're withholding something from me. And then he said, Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. The sovereignty of God and the choices of God and the sovereignty are always going to be surprising in the recipient. Like even Jesse's, even David's own dad thought, man, nah. Like he says, Jesse is told, hey, bring your whole family to the sacrifice. I need to consecrate all of your sons. And somewhere in Jesse's heart was like, well, man, he couldn't be talking about Dave over there. I mean, Dave, he he just ain't got it all together. You see, David at the time, we tend to think David's a young man in his mid-20s, like just beastly looking guy. David, if you look at the text and you understand the text, when did most boys go to war? At 20. And we'll see in chapter 17 that the three oldest boys have to be at least 20 years old. So that leaves David. Now there's, remember, how many sons? Seven. Now I don't mean to be crude or rude here, but that meant that David, Jesse, and his wife had one kid after another, after another, after another. And there's daughters involved. There's got to be, that's just that they had one kid every year. That'd be a 10-year gap. So the youngest that he could have been is probably seven if you do the numbers right. The oldest would have been 15 because you were still considered a boy until you went through the rite of passage, which is 13 or 14. So David, you know, is probably 13 years old. And Jesse thought, man, there's no way he's going to, Annoying a 13-year-old. I mean, I know I wouldn't. Have you ever been around a 13-year-old? And so Jesse's thinking, man, these are my studs. This is who I would have chosen, not him. I could preach a whole other message on that. We often go and we begin to survey the land and we think, man, that's the guy. That's the guy. That's the woman. Look, look at their statue. Look, look what they bring to the table. Look at their intellect. Look what all they have. And then there's this whole group of people that we just bypass. Oh, no way. There's no way God's doing anything with those guys. I'll put it this way for us. If you came to work with me every day, There's a whole lot of nobodies in that room. Just out of prison. They've committed and done things that are heinous. And you and I on the server would be like, no way, man. And we'll bypass people like that. We'll bypass the guy asking for money. Maybe God wants to use you and use me to speak truth into his life. But we're like, man, gosh, get a job. Am I the only one guilty? I mean, I think, man, a dollar, here's an application to McDonald's. That, that's my first thought. 
But this message, God is convicting me like, no, man, don't pass over anybody. Because you'll be surprised who God may want to use for his kingdom. And so Jesse says, yeah, there's the youngest. Look at how he describes him. Oh, he's the youngest. He's keeping the sheep. <laughs> like, man, he, that guy, he don't even have an important job. He just out, stinks like sheep, kind of hangs out with the sheep. He's not doing much. Like, are you sh- Basically, he's saying, are you sure? Because I'm sure. That's why I didn't invite him. Are you sure? And then Samuel says this. Samuel said, oh, I'm sure. Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. What, man? Like, he's all the way in the field, bro. Let's eat. And Samuel says, no, we're not even going to sit down. We're not even going to look at the food. We're not going to touch the food until God's chosen man comes into the building. I I wonder what's going on in the hearts. We'll see it in chapter 17, the hearts of his brother. Oh, man, you picked that dude? Come on. Like, these seven other brothers have been rejected. And now we're waiting on stinky pants? I mean, he didn't smell good, I'll just be honest. That's who we're waiting on? Yeah. And he sent and brought him in. This is the coolest part to me of this whole passage. Think of all the people that came that day. They had to be consecrated to get to the sacrifice. This is the one man that didn't need to be consecrated because his consecration was happening in the fields. Don't miss that in the passage. Think about that. I I know we we see that one little sentence. We're like, oh, man, he came in. Of course he came in. He came in, and Samuel didn't have to do anything to him. Because why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. You see, the other seven people were not men of God after their own heart. So they had to be set right by the consecration. But here comes young David into the mix, and Samuel doesn't have to do anything to him because he saw the heart. The heart had already been circumcised by God. Not because of anything that David did, but because of everything that God had already done. The sovereignty of God. And it says he was ruddy. This means he had red skin and red hair. Most people think he's Irish, but he's not. He was beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, that's my guy. That's my guy. God's sovereign choices are specific. That's my guy. Is what God said to Samuel. Why is David the guy? How did David have a heart after God? We'll see three things. Go and get David. In God's sovereign plan, we, the recipient, when God calls, must always be ready do you see that 
David was ready for the call before he knew what was going on. Do you think that David got up that morning as a 13-year-old boy with his staff and his sling and went to the pastor and thought, man, this is the day. This is the day God's coming. He's going to anoint me as king. I'm the man. No, he got up and said, I've got to be faithful and be ready, and i just got to go be the little shepherd boy. He had no clue what was coming. So he, had to, he did not that morning get up and have an extra quiet time. He didn't have extra time with the Lord. He didn't have extra repentance because he lived a life up until this point, always being ready for the call of God on his life, no matter what happened. How do we know that? Because when the, the bear and the lion came, he was ready. And as a teenager, he killed a lion and a bear with his hands. That's not because of him. That's because of the Spirit of God was on him always. He was ready. The next one is this. That in God's sovereignty and in God's choosing, we, the recipient, must be reliable. How do we know that? Where did Jesse say? Go find my son in the field, tending the sheep. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around 13-year-old boys. They're not really reliable. Like, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm glad I got GPS on his phone. But Jesse knew the reliability of David. Man, that's a kid who'll always be in the field. He was already having the heart of obedience. He wasn't wandering around. He wasn't trying to get out of his work. He went and served his dad faithfully because he was serving God faithfully. He was reliable. He says, anoint him, for this is he. The last thing that we see is that God chooses us and redeems us. He was redeemed by God that day. How do we know that? It says this in the last verse. Then Saul took the oil and he anointed him. That means the redemption. That means being set apart. Like the oil was significant that when Samuel began to pour the oil over David, David was in the front of his whole family. He was set apart that day. That there's something special about him that isn't so special about the rest of y'all. But who did the anointing? Who did the redeeming? God is the one that chose David. David was minding his business in the field. God redeemed him. And I don't want to leave this last part out. But after the redemption, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. There will always be power from God in our redemption. You see the sovereignty of God. God back when Adam and Eve fell had set a plan in place to redeem his people. God begins to prophesy over his people that there's going to be a king, there's going to be a a great king that comes. And where does he come from? 
Bethlehem. Go back to verse 1 and 2 and 3. Where is King David from? Bethlehem. You see, we, we see the sovereignty of God with David, but now we see the sovereignty of God with his eternal plan. That God had a plan to redeem his people, and it was going to start with one man in Bethlehem, but it had to come through a line of David. God has a plan for us. You see, and as we move on to the rest of this book, these two books, and we look at the life of David, I don't want us to look at the life of David. Because if we just look at the life of David, then we'll go to chapter 17 and we'll say, hey, we'll get to 17 and we'll say to ourselves, hey, there's David and Goliath, so the story must be, hey, there's always going to be giants in your life, so be like David and go conquer the giants. Because that's a limited view on just David's life. But my hope and my prayer is that now we see, man, wait, this is the pre-Messiah. David's life parallels with the Son of God. It starts with where they're born. It starts with they were chosen and had a plan. And the plan was to redeem Israel. And now we're going to see the rest of the plan take place. Even if with great, the great sin of Bathsheba, we will see the gospel through David's life. My prayer and my hope is this morning, do we believe in the sovereignty of God? That David is way more than just a character of the Bible. David was given to us by God to show us who's to come, the gospel. And so even this morning as we look, God is sovereign in control of all things at all times. Even when it looks like he isn't, he will always send redemption. Always, Gerald. Always, Jonathan. Always, Lauren. Always, Patty. Always, Jerry. You briefly told us that in our meeting this morning, Jerry. The sovereignty of God. Like, man, I see. You told us, I I saw all the hand of God. Miss Teresa, with your brother, God is sovereign. I don't know what that looks like. I, I don't know if that means he healed from cancer. God uses cancer to redeem him. I I don't know that, but I know God's sovereign. God's allowed your brother to have cancer. And ultimately, I know it's for his good and for his glory. That's all I know, because that's what God's word tells us. Amen? And so we get caught up on the sovereignty of God. We we don't want to believe the sovereignty of God. Why? Because when we think, man, that outcome is going to look really bad, we think God can't be in control of that. You see, it looked really bad for the Israelites that day when Saul was rejected as king. And it looked really bad that day when a 13-year-old boy was anointed king. And it looked really bad for the rest of the, the months and years to come when David still wasn't king and Saul was making a mess of things. But God said it. God spoke it. God declared it. Therefore, it will come to pass that God will always bring redemption and always bring glory out of everything that happens. Amen? And so this morning, 
That is how God chooses nobodies. And here's the truth of it all. We're all a pack of nobodies. I got one yeah and a whole bunch. Like, welcome to the pack of nobodies. But thank God that he chose this pack of nobodies to do something for his kingdom. Let us pray. God, you are sovereign. You are in control. And in your wisdom and in your providence, you set forth a plan. And that plan from the fall was to redeem people. And it was ultimately to send your son. And all through the Old Testament, it's pushing us and pushing us and pushing us to see your redemptive work throughout history. And so, God, I, I pray for us this morning that we be a people of God after the heart of God. And if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I, I, I don't have the heart of God. Like, I, I just don't have that. Well, the heart of God is simply this. That he loves you. He created you. You sinned against him, but yet he redeemed you. He offers you the free gift of his son. And it says, in his son and his son alone, that we have the heart of God. You tell us so clear in your word, God. 